you shouldn't shave but cultivate your down and let it grow so when you do return twill be soft and white as snow your lovely jane will be surprised to all begin to cook the greenhorn to his mother will say how savage i must look Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will be beginning, be beginning a very, very long series on Francis Parkman Jr.'s historical writings, um, starting with uh, basically the order of publication. We'll look at the conspiracy of Pontiac in this and the next four episodes following this. And then we will jump right into France and England in North America, a seven-volume uh, history of, of the Clash of Empires in, in North America from 1600 to, to 1763. Um, this book, uh, The Conspiracy of Pontiac, um, it's Parkman's second book. It was published in 1851. It followed uh, the Oregon Trail, which I already talked about. Oregon Trail obviously was not a history, um, but this was. This was a straight-up history. Um, and, you know, he collect, started collecting documents for this while he was doing the work on writing and, and researching the Oregon Trail. Um, and it took him then a few years after that to, to put down all his ideas. Um, and, you know, most people will look at Parkman's writings as, as literature, and there's a lot of criticism of him as a historian. But especially in how he he embellishes stories, he taught he adds things that he obviously didn't know and couldn't know, and such as you know the the sounds of the battlefield. I mean, he's a narrative historian though, and I think these are maybe narrative historians now do this less um, than in the past. But it, there's always going to be some effort to reconstruct uh, the feel, the scene, and you can't footnote everything. Um, if you want to be literary about it, so I'm not I'm not that hard on him. I, I think uh, the these stand up as as histories, however flawed they might be. And obviously, since it's 150 years ago, so there have been new interpretations of Pontiac's Rebellion, of the French and Indian War, of the conflict between empires. You know, obviously, uh, empire is one of the biggest topics in history now. So obviously, these things are going to be reconsidered and, and thought through. So we don't care about uh, how it stands up, but you know what? I mean, by those standards, Herodotus is kind of a bad historian, I would say. Um, you know, and has all kind of faults. You know, he uses primary sources, he provides evidence for his claims, but he embellishes and he develops and he he provides that narrative flavor to the text, and I, and I think that makes it readable. That's why, if it was just a boring footnote laden history of of the conspiracy of Pontiac, I probably wouldn't be in the life of America. It's here because people still read this because it stands as, as literature as well as, as history. So, um, yeah. Um, now you can, if you, if you read the preface to the sixth edition, I think. Yeah. This, this, this has, uh, the preface for the first and the sixth edition of this book. That was in 1870, the sixth edition of the conspiracy of Pontiac. And we can see how Parkman was thinking how this book, The Conspiracy of Pontiac, would fit 
into the what he the work he was actively working on at the time, the France and England in North America. What would be his life's work, that seven volume work? He starts to think of this book as a sequel or like an eighth volume in that series. He wrote in this introduction, the two volumes of the present edition have made uniform with those of the series France and England and North America. I assume he means there like in the style and the print and all that. I hope to continue that series to the period of the extinction of French power on the continent. The Conspiracy of Pontiac will then form a sequel and its introductory chapters will be in a certain sense a summary of what is preceded. So that tells us what we're going to get. Um, the first full quarter of this book, uh, what I'm going to cover in this episode and much of what I'm going to cover in next episode, all is stuff that pre- it's just setting up the context for the conspiracy. And mostly it dwells with the story of, of Indians and the story of France and England. That's the, the three players in this drama, right? And, you know, to make, to kind of get to the point in Parkman's thesis here, as far as I can tell, I'm, I'm not fully through the whole book yet. Um, but uh, what the thesis seems to be is France and England fought the Indians were able to exist in the middle of that, that imperial conflict and maintain their independence by playing one side off, off the other, uh, especially allying with the French. When the French were defeated, uh, the Algonquins, of which Pontiac's revolt was a revolt of Algonquins, the, 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 the Iroquois people mostly sat out, except for the Wyandots and the Seneca, I believe, were part of it. They, they allied with uh, the Algonquins. It was largely an Algonquin rebellion. Uh, saw a chance to to help the French in the final years of the Seven Years' War in North America. Um, but at that point, you know, it was already too late. Uh, the French were already gone. Canada had fallen. The French weren't coming back. Negotiations were being worked out in Paris at the time, which would have abandoned the Indians. But the Indians knowing, Pontiac and the other Algonquins, knowing that the fall of France would mean eventually settlers coming across into the West, they made an effort to try to uh, reverse their, their inevitable fortune, right? And that's the, the, that's the um, vain thesis of the cause, the root cause of Pontiac's revolt. Now, I would say if you pick up a history book, a college history book, that's kind of the story you're going to get. I don't think it's that different from how most people still look at this. So that core thesis about the cause of this stand-up Right. I think uh, much of the book, though, especially after you get through that first quarter or so, which is all kind of setting up the background, is narrative. It's narrative history. It's deeply interested in in like the battles, the the, the plots, the intrigues, the the you know. It's a lot of narrative military history here. If you're into that sort of thing, so um, if you're not. You know, a lot of the book may be kind of forgettable and, and hard to keep in mind. But, you know, if you're interested in the tactics, the feel of the battle, the, the suffering, the, the pain, the, the wounded soldiers crying out, Parkman does a really good job of kind of bringing that stuff to life. Uh, you know, even, though, as he, even as he bases this in, in documents and in, in primary sources of race type. Um, so anyways, the... The book itself is in two volumes. I'm going to cover this over five episodes or so because it is fairly lengthy. But um, the first volume covers 
like the lead up to Pontiac's revolt, the cause of it, and then events of 1963, um, basically up to the siege of Detroit and a few other battles. And then volume two, uh, which goes into 1964 and the aftermath of Pontiac's revolt, looks at uh, the final defeat of the, of the Algonquin Indians and Pontiac, Pontiac's death and the consequences of, of that for, for North America. And of course, one of those consequences is American Revolution, because one of the British response to Pontiac's re rebellion was to issue the proclamation line of 1763, which limited settlement to the West. Um, in fact, Parkman at one point makes the suggestion that had that issue been issued earlier, had that promise to Indians had been made earlier, and had the Indians known earlier about the Treaty of Paris, they would have won had some kind of guarantee of no settlement, whether that would have held or not is a different issue, but they would have had some guarantee of no settlement in the West, and two, they would have known the French couldn't have helped them. The French were gone forever. That, those two things would have prevented the, the conspiracy. True or not, I don't know, but um, you know, maybe it was just bad timing in, in one way. Parkman seems to think that's possibly the case. But obviously it did lead to the American Revolution because it was one of the big grievances against the British Empire in the colonies was you had a growing population in the colonies. They wanted land in the West, but they were being forbidden from going there because the British didn't want to defend those settlers from Indians, didn't want to pay the cost for that. And that became a, one of the critiques of the British Empire during the age of the American Revolution. And of course, the defeat of the British in the American Revolution further doomed the Indians and of course leads to another revolt in 1812, the Tecumseh Uprising. Um, so anyways, it's, it's kind of a pattern of American history going back to King Philip or the Pequots, uh, Pontiac and then, then Tecumseh and, and on and on, even into the Great West, we get that. So anyways. All right, so in the preface to the first edition, his sort of introduction, we, we, we get this thesis kind of right away. Um, quote, the, quote, the conquest of Canada was an event of monumental consequence in American history. It changed the political aspects of the continent, prepared a way for the independence of the British colonies, rescued the vast tracts of the interior from the rule of military despotism, and gave them eventually to the keeping of an ordered democracy. Yet to the red natives of the soil, its results were wholly disastrous. Could the French have maintained their ground, the ruin of the Indian tribes might long have been postponed, but the victory of Quebec was a signal of their swift decline. Thenceforth, they were de destined to melt and vanish before the advancing waves of Anglo-American power, which now rolled westward unchecked and unopposed. They saw danger, and led by a great and daring champion, struggled, struggled fiercely to avert it. The history of that epoch, crowded as it is with the sense of tragic interest and the marvels of suffering and vicissitude of heroism and endurance, have been as yet unwritten, buried in the archives of government, or among the obscure records of the private adventurer. To rescue it from oblivion is the object of the following work. It aims to portray the American forest and the American Indian at a period where both received their final doom. Um, now, obviously there's some troubling assumptions that, and, and cliches, stereotypes about the Indian that Parkman embraces right away in this book. Uh, one is kind of tying it to nature, seeing the Indian as largely an adjunct of nature, right? The American forest and the American Indian, when both receive their final doom, they, they rise and fall together. They decline together. They die together. The death of the Indian's independence 
in the West leads to the destruction of, of, the, of the forests, right? The replacement of the forest with farms and cities and commodities, uh, something we talked about a little bit with uh, the Oregon Trail book, which predated that. Um, what else? Uh, the, the, the idea of the Indian as somehow like a declining, defeated, withering away population. Again, you know, obviously not true. Uh, Indian communities survived and endured uh, great hardship and, and endured genocide and wars of violence and theft and, and all kinds of horrible conditions, uh, but survived. So they don't vanish or melt away. They, they were conquered, of course, and defeated and often removed and displaced. But, you know, some of this language is, is a bit troubling. Like he does sort of buy into this idea of kind of the, the last Indian sort of thing. Okay, so for the first 100 pages or so, it covers about three chapters, if you include all the introductory material and the table of contents. Um, so I'm going with that, the first three chapters. Um, it only covers, it covers essentially some of the background people, the players, the stage. So that's all I'm going to do in this episode is kind of lay the stage for, for the, this Pontiac's Rebellion and the Seven Years' War. Not even get into so much of the details of the Seven Years' War, which are discussed starting in Chapter 4. Now, all of this, by the way, is rehashed in France and England and North America in various degrees, right? Like, um, there's one chapter here. It's actually chapter four, so it's getting ahead of it, that covers uh, the Seven Years' War in, in North America. That itself is one of the largest volume of France and England and North America. Montecom and the Wolf. Montecom and Wolf, sorry, not the Wolf. I want to say the Wolf, but, you know, General Wolf. But, you know, too bad he wasn't, he didn't go by the name the Wolf. But Montecom and Wolf, that's the largest of the volumes. I think it's like 600 pages or so. And that covers all the details of this campaign to seize Canada, to seize Canada and the victory of the British in Canada. Um, that's discussed here in just one chapter. So what he says is this sort of becomes like a, a if you read this at the end of France and England and North America, this becomes sort of a, a little bit of a review or a recap. But if you read it chronologically with publication, he, you know, he wrote this before he even knew he was going to write France and England and North America. And, you know, he's just giving the very, very brief summary of the Seven Years' War to set up uh, the important context. But that's going to be the next episode where I talk about that, because in this episode, all we really have is, is three chapters. The first is about the Indians and specifically the Iroquois and the Algonquins and their culture, their societies, their traditions. Um, second, France and England in America, which both kind of, it's a kind of a compare and contrast of France and England. And mostly it's about France. He doesn't say that much about England. I'm assuming maybe his readers, he didn't think his readers needed a recap of English culture and English traditions, but maybe they needed French. Let's say 90% of that chapter speaks specifically about the French. Um, then chapter three is called the French, English, and the Indians, which then is about the interactions of these three players in the tapestry of empire in in North America. All right, so uh, chapter one. Chapter one is called, uh, it's Introductory Indian Tribes East of the Mississippi is the name we got. Um, like 18th century books, you get these uh, table of contents that break down each chapter into, you know, each almost paragraph, each with its own title. So 
you kind of know the contents coming up. Now, I took, for Lisa's first part at least, I took a lot of careful margin notes right in the books. These are really nice books. I shouldn't write in them, but I do. Um, you know, for, for later parts, it becomes much more narrative, and it's, you know, not as important to maybe take careful notes, but there are some really great moments uh, throughout here, literary moments. Um, but uh, this first chapter just looks at Indians as a whole. He tries to give some overall character of the Indians. Um, and he does make some mistakes here, obviously, from what we now know. For instance, he insists that these are primarily hunting cultures, when in fact, he contradicts himself later on, where he talks about how the French came to the Iroquois and saw these massive uh, fields and huge storehouses of grain. Um, you know, they, 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 they were farming cultures that, that had, a, had a culture of hunting attached to it, but they weren't primarily hunting people the way, you know, you had in the Great West. You know, there were hunting cultures, hunter, you know, hunting cultures there, but not the Algonquins or the Iroquois who were by and large uh, agricultural people. Um, there's, there's some gender thing there too, by the way. Um, women did the farming in, in Iroquois and Algonquin society for the most part. And, and so if you look at society just from a male gaze, which Parkman doesn't fully do, but generally he does, you might miss that. And then you, if you focus just on the men, you're like, oh, they're a hunting culture. Well, it's because women did most of the, of the farming. I talked a little bit about Indian identity first on, um, you know, right away in the story. Uh, quote, the Indian is a true child of the forest and the desert. The wastes and solitudes of nature are his congenial homes. His haughty mind is imbued with the spirit of wilderness and the light of the civilization falls on him with blightening power. His unruly pride and untamed freedoms are in harmony with the lonely mountains, cataracts, and rivers among which he dwells. So without going too much into this and giving too much credence to these uh, rather dated interpretations you got his view that the in indians and nature are kind of linked together economically eco almost like in an ecological bind uh, it, he might fit into the ecological indian argument perhaps i'm not sure um but then this other part this the, the focus on pride and, and freedom is something he comes back to a whole lot uh you know how political leadership comes from people voluntarily accepting someone because of their, their heroism, right? Uh, especially among the Iroquois and the Algonquins, which are the main groups he focuses on in this story. Um, now, I, I think he's wrong to emphasize the hunting, which he does also on this first page. Um, then he gets into their little politics, and he's trying in a way that's kind of doomed to failure. So let's... He, what he tries to do in the first few pages of this chapter are just impossible. It cannot be done. You cannot universalize and generalize ways of life, politics, culture among the Indians in North America. It, it simply can't be done. And he tries, and, and he's sort of doomed, but um, some of the points he makes anyways, if you're interested. Uh, each man is his own master. He had hopes of restraint and had, owns no other authority than his own capricious will. Um, so despite that, though, you have a hierarchy um, where you have titles that might be hereditary, like the sachem, essentially a chief, um, who, who hold political power. Um, but their power is limited. They're really just advisory. So this idea that certainly I think is part of the American impression of, of, of Indians at the time is that they're sort of stateless. They lack political authority. They're just sort of 
um, a loose confederation of individuals who come together from time to time based on uh, their own individual will. Um, now that is really simplify, simplifying the real, political realities of, of Indian life, obviously. But again, he's, this is a 150-year-old history book. Uh, it's really hard to judge from what we now know, uh, you know against this. And I think still, by and large, I would argue, I would agree that there are political alternatives presented in Indian uh, political culture that maybe we should learn from and appreciate. And, and, and they are different. It's not that, you know, by emphasizing the diversity and the difference, I, I appreciate that of what Parkman's doing. To say these people had a very, very different way of conceiving of political power. And in that, in that conceit, there's, there's an alternative and potential to rethink our own political culture. Well, anyways, one thing that Parkman focuses on in this, this chapter, especially early on, trying to give this overall picture, is um, how clans become more important than, than tribes, and, what tr and tribes and clans are kind of perpendicular to each other. Um, I don't know. I actually haven't studied enough Native American his social history to, to know if he's right about this now or what people say about this argument, but the clans sort of run across tribes. So he says here, each clan and its emblem consisting of a figure of some bird, beast, or reptile, and is distinguished by the name of the animal, which it thus bears as its device. As for example, the clan of the wolf, the deer, the otter, or the hawk. The language of the Algonquins, these emblems are known as the name of totems. So you have like a incest taboo within the clans, uh, but these clans run across tribes. So it creates kind of a connecting tissue in society that helps bind uh, these communities together and at a time like Pontiac where you have this or social or this organized resistance You know that is aided by the The, the clans the clan structure um, Now he mentions there's three great families of Indians east of the Mississippi uh, the Iroquois which includes the Wyandots the, the Huron the Algonquin which are like the Delaware um, Groups like that um, And the Moblian the Moblian is like the Creeks and the Choctaws and the Chickasaws, the, the, what would later be called the, the civilized tribes uh, that would be removed during Indian removal of the 1830s and 1840s. He doesn't talk about the Mobilian group because they're not really part of the story. He focuses on the Iroquois and the Algonquins. Now, as for the Iroquois, it's a really great introduction, I think, to, to the Iroquois, just as a successful political experiment obviously you have a confederacy binding together these five tribes the the mohawk the oneida the onondaga the cayuga and the seneca later on the tuscarora of course are added to that um, and they also have this totem ship this clan system he argues which again laces together he uses the word laces together by an eightfold band the the five nations of the confederacy um, uh, and really, his, one of his biggest interests here, he goes into the myth, the, the origin of Iroquois mythology, of, of their society. But he also talks about their wealth, you know, their strong community, their culture, their, their stories, and ultimately how this translates into political power. Um, political power being their capacity eventually to dominate um, neighboring areas, becoming the major force in North American politics for, for decades and decades. 
right? Now, these are sometimes called the, the Beaver Wars. They're sometimes called the Morning Wars. You know, the Beaver War interpretation is that these were wars basically fighting neighboring tribes for access to the beaver trade. The Morning Wars are, these were wars to acquire prisoners of war to replace members of the community that died maybe in disease, as the diseases flowed through. He doesn't say much about uh, diseases, except actually in the introduction. Um, he, he, in the, his preface to the sixth edition, he says this. Um, he, he talks about what documents he, he read since the original publication that he adds. And he says, among the facts which they bring to light, some are sufficiently startling, as, for example, the proposal of commander-in-chief of the commander-in-chief to infect the hostile tribes with the smallpox. Well, that, that's the only mention of disease that I came across so far, um, overtly. Um, I think the, the, the epidemics ran through much earlier in the history. Um, so basically, he focuses here a lot on Iroquois expansion and victories and the violence of their of their rule and the brutality of their of their uh, their their conquests quote they were the worst of conquerors inordinate pride and lust of blood and dominion were the main springs of their warfare and their victories were strained by every excess of savage passion that their triumphs might have cost them dear that in spite of their cautious tactics these multiplied conflicts must have greatly abridged their strength and would appear inevitable. Their losses were in fact considerable, but every breach was repaired by means of a practice to which they in common with other tribes constantly endured. When their vengeance was glutted by the sacrifice of sufficient number of captives, they spared the lives of the remainder and adopted them as members of their confederated tribe, separating wives from husbands and children from parents and distributing them among different villages in order that old ties and associations might be more completely broken up. The policy, which is said to have been designed among them by the name, which signifies flesh cut into pieces and scattered among the tribes. Um, you know, he's saying here this practice of taking these prisoners and adopting them into Iroquois families to replace like the fallen, fallen Iroquois was meant to kind of break up these other tribes. That might be. I, I've heard it was more, you know, the kind of the morning war argument before. But, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm just looking at what's in front of me. So a really nice though, description, I think, of, of the Iroquois. Um, then we get the Algonquins. Now, the fact that the Algonquins are the kind of the centerpiece of the story of Pontiac, he says a lot less about them. Um, he's not, doesn't seem as interested in them. And, but then they're a much bigger group, right? He, he talks how the Iroquois are kind of like a, a pool with the Wyandots. He has a section on the Wyandots, the Hurons, who are Iroquois speaking. Uh, you know, how the Algonquins are like an ocean and the Iroquois are like an island in this Algonquin ocean. Um, you know, most of the early interactions between North American Indians and, and British settlers was with the Algonquins. The Iroquois, you know, were accessed through the Mississippi Valley. So the French had more of an access to them, but the ones on the coast... Uh, like the Lenape, the, the, the Delaware, the Miamis, the Illinois, the Shwanos, Ojibwe's, Potawatomi's, all these different groups were, you know, shared that kind of linguistic family. Um, and uh, just as someone who likes weird fiction, obviously, there was a shout out to, um, to some of the folklore of the Algonquins, which I loved reading about. 
um, quote, they heard the malignant sorcerers dwelling among the lonely islands of spellbound lakes, of grisly wendigos, of bloodless gibi, and of evil manitubes, panatos, lurking in the dens and fastness of the woods, of pygmy champions, diminutive in stature, but mighty in soul, who by the potency of charm and talisman subdued, subdued the direst monsters in the waste. Um, so a little bit of Algonquin folklore. Um, now, as he concludes his picture of the Indians, he kind of attacks earlier romanticized views of, of Indians. So as, as, in the same way we can criticize Parkman for some of his old-fashioned views, he was criticizing other people for even more old-fashioned views of the Indians. So he's kind of a progressive in his depiction of the Indians for his time. Um, but one thing he does emphasize, though, is the common humanity of, of the Indians and their diversity of their, their culture. And I think that obviously holds up. But in the very next paragraph, he goes back to kind of universal mental habits that he sees embraced by the Indians. So he, he falls into some patterns of making certain assumptions about the Native American people. But I say overall, I, I thought I, I learned a lot reading this. And even though it's 150 years old, I, I think there's a lot you can take from that just survey of the Iroquois and Algonquin people of North America, their culture and, and their people, their politics. And uh, even if it's something that we need to then read more up-to-date stuff on and break it down, I think it's uh, useful. At least tell us. At least it tells us how people in the 19th century were were viewing these these cultures. And you know, people in 1850. You know, for them, 18, 1763 was a long time ago. And this is like the first book about Pontiac ever written, um, as far as I know. No one had written so he's being a pioneer here in writing this history and maybe a lot of his readers didn't really have much to go on except maybe a leather stocking or, or someone like that to you know to tell him what life was like among the indians so it's probably significant in that way all right chapter two is called uh, france and england in america 1608 to 1763 uh, don't think you're going to get a history of the period from 1608 to 1763 here. You're not. You basically get, over the course of maybe 10 pages or so, um, a survey of French presence in North America. Uh, he doesn't say that much about the English. Uh, he's got a general com comparison, though. And this is something that's going to carry through in France and England and North America. So, yeah, he kind of sees this not just as a clash of empires, but as a clash of kind of civilizations. Um, quote, in the valley of the St. Lawrence and along the coasts of the Atlantic, adverse principles contended for the mastery. Feudalism stood arrayed against democracy, popery against Protestantism, the sword against the plowshare, the priest, the soldier, and the noble ruled in Canada. The ignorant, lighthearted Canadian peasant knew nothing but cared nothing and cared nothing but popular rights and civil liberties. Born to obey, he lived in content submission, without the wish or the capacity for self-rule. Power centered in the heart of the system, left the masses inert. The settlements along the margin of the St. Lawrence were like a camp. On and on. You know, so he does not think much of, of French political traditions, right? He's kind of like with Edmund Burke here, and kind of saying like the, the you know, the English had these inherited rights. The, the French didn't, and so they were not really capable of, of, any, of any greater liberties. That said, though, I mean, there's a lot of little 
side discussions about the fur traders, the voyagers, you know, those people don't seem to fit this. He, he has to go to the peasants, the Canadian peasant to be, to find evidence of that. But then many of those peasants became the fur traders and these frontiersmen who seem to live quite free lives. So I don't know. I, I, I don't really buy this total, uh, like total potpourri and slavishness on the one hand and Protestantism and freedom on the other. Hogwash, if you ask me. Um, but anyways, uh, what else does he talk about here? Uh, he, he talks about, for instance, the focus of the church in French Canada, the Jesuits. And we get a nice review here, if you don't already know, about the martyr of the Canadian Jesuit missionaries. Uh, their, their kind of heroic deaths of people like uh, uh, Isaac Gouge, Jean de Brebeuf. Gabriel Laminant. These are people we'll talk about in volume two of France and England in North America, which is all about the Jesuit missions in North America. A really one of my favorite books in that series, I think. But his main point is like, it didn't really do much. They, they martyred themselves, but they just were sort of, you know, they didn't spread Christianity. Or if they did, they baptized people. That's one thing he says. Like, the Protestant missionaries, they tried to convert the soul of these people. The French missionaries just wanted to sprinkle the water on them, you know, get them Christian nominally, and then move on to the next village or something. Um, but essentially what this chapter is doing, and it does it quite well if you accept his argument, if you're skeptical about it, you, you realize you're reading some kind of bad, over-deterministic history here. But it's still key to his point of view, especially in the subsequent volumes, subsequent volumes. His view being that really these are two civilizations that are fundamentally different. It wasn't just a clash of empires and imperial interests. The success and failure of one or the other is rooted into their different cultures. And the, the path of empire in the Americas is based on the differences in those, those cultures. Um, quote, in the detached settlements, there was no principle of increase. This is France. The character of the people and the government which ruled them were alike unfavorable to it. Agriculture was neglected for the more congenial pursuits of the fur trade and the restless roving Canadians, scattering abroad in their wild vocation, allied themselves to Indian women and filled the woods with Mongol races of bushrangers. Good. Good for them. I wouldn't call them mongrels, but... Doesn't sound like slaves to me if they're out in the frontier starting up families with the Indians. They're not... Just slavish peasants who can do nothing but listen to the church and the king. I think he's contradictory here, if you ask me. All right. Chapter 3. The last thing I'm going to talk about today. The French, the English, and the Indians, 1608 to 1763. Um, let's be quick here. It's a fairly long chapter, though. Um, really, what Parkman here emphasizes is the different relationships with Indians that the French and the English embraced. And, you know, he has stuff about Penn and that kind of benevolent attitude towards the Indians pursued by Penn, but how it was kind of undercut by the fact that in reality, land was being stolen under Penn's, Penn's leadership. So he's quite honest about that. Um, but generally, he sees that the French did more to actually... Um, cooperate with, get to know, and to actually 
a lie in a real sense with the Indians. And part of this, I think, goes back to those bush rangers you talked about before. These half-civilized vagrants, as he calls them at one point, were kind of intermediaries between French civilization and, and Indian civilization. Uh, and that created a, a, a more fruitful ground for cooperation uh, in the, there. Um, we're introduced to William Johnson, who will, of course, be cr critical in the, in the Seven Years' War. Um, but this is kind of setting up kind of the third piece of this. You got France and England, but you got the Indians who their loyalty, which side they're going to be on is not entirely clear, but it's rooted in, a, a, you know, a hundred years of colonial policy coming from London or Paris. Um, to quote the conclusion of this, um, but with a few and slight exceptions, the numerous tribes of the Great Lakes and the Mississippi, besides the half, the host of domiciliated, domiciliated savages in Canada itself stood ready at the bidding of France to grind their tomahawks and turn loose their ravenous war parties, while the British colonists had too much reason to fear even those tribes which seemed most friendly to their cause and which formed the sole barrier of their unprotected borders might, at the first sound of a war whoop, be found in arms against them. So this is how France, despite lacking numbers, was, would be able to pose a challenge to the British in North America, right? Um, Parkman doesn't want to see these, the victory of, of England as inevitable here. He, he sees it as you know, something that could have went either way. And one of the big variables was that close relationship between the French and the Indians that he establishes. So we're about 100 pages into this 500-some page book. And we're not even to like the, his description of the Seven Years' War, much less Pontiac's going. We haven't even met Pontiac yet. So it takes them a while to get there. But in the next episode, I promise we'll get into the into Pontiac's revolt properly. Um, and yeah, and that's it for um, for now. So I will see you next time. Where I'll, I think it'll be chapters four through thirteen or so of the first volume of Pon the conspiracy of pontiac by francis parkman jr if you have any of your thoughts about uh the iroquois the algonquins colonial france and england and north america you know leave your thoughts and i'll make sure to keep them in mind when i read the big the big book the seven volume uh, epic france and england and north america so i'll keep it in mind um, but uh, for now, send me your comments, 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And I will for bread and meat, for coffee and for brains. Your 60 days are a hundred or more in your grub. You've got to divide. Your steers and mules are alkaline, so put it you cannot ride. You have to stand to watch it. Some heads will ache and some